owning one property, assuming numbers are good, can still hurt. It just takes one person not paying one major problem, whatever that may be. When you own 10, something's wrong in one of them, you're probably still positive cash flow-wise. It's time for the Creative Real Estate Podcast, your source for out-of-the-box real estate investing strategies brought to you by ecospace.com. Now, here's your hosts, Adam and Jason. Welcome back to the Creative Real Estate Podcast. I'm your co-host, Jason J. Lou Lewis. And today, we have Ali Barglami on today. He's both a friend, a real estate investor, a certified financial planner that's very well trusted and respected here in the Denver metro, as well as multiple states. But more importantly, he is, his calling in life is a kid's basketball coach. So we'll have to dive into that at some point. I know it's always fun uh, hearing uh, kids basketball stories when we catch up over the years. So he'll have some fun stories there, but more importantly, he's just a great resource from both a certified financial planner and an actual real estate investor himself. So he sees it from the high net worth individual side, as well as the personal side. So our goal today is to have him on here and he can just share some nuggets of wisdom that anyone in that high net worth or the newbie kind of starter real estate investor can take away and hopefully help them in their real estate and also just financial investing journey. So Allie, Welcome, my friend. Good being here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're excited for today. So let's just uh, share with the listeners kind of how you've got into the real estate journey and the financial planning and how you've essentially kind of molded those two together, both for your personal investing journey and for your clients. Good question. And it's kind of a two-part answer. So my first rental was the first house I ever bought. When I was 22, I bought a house down in Pueblo, Colorado. My first job was uh, selling pharmaceuticals down there. And I lived there for about two years and then had it as a rental for a few years, eventually selling it to a friend of mine who still owns it as a rental to this day. And I ended up owning a couple other properties. And this is back in my 20s, which you can't see me, but that's a long time ago. And I eventually sold all of them by luck more than anything before 08 and 09 happened. And then my real real estate journey, so I had some experience from back then, but my real journey started at Christmas 2009. I was sitting there with my brother-in-laws, and we may or may not have been drinking, and they started telling me about their rentals in the uh, suburbs of the Boise area, a couple cities called Nampa and Caldwell. And I pulled out my calculator, and I put the numbers in, and I'm like, I got to quit drinking. So I went to bed, got up in the morning asked them the same questions, put it in my calculator again, and I got the same answers. And so essentially those, the first property I bought, I was viewing it more as a bond than as a piece of real estate. Using my, my financial planning background, I'm like, hold on, I can buy this and it's going to pay me about 10% a year after all expenses were what my numbers showed. And so I got a property under contract. I flew out to look at that property. And while I was out there looking... I looked at a bunch of others with my realtor who was introduced to me by my brother-in-laws. And I I remember calling my banker at lunch and I'd put offers in on four or five properties at that point. And that was all the money that I had agreed to with my banker. And I said, Brandon, I'm out of money if they take these offers. But I was offering, you know, 70% of the asking price because again, this is a different world back then. 
And I said, can we double what we talked about? And Brandon said, sure. So I put offers in all afternoon as well. And I, I remember my realtor, a guy named Creed Herbolt out in, in Boise, saying to me on the first offer I made, I, I can't take that offer, Allie. That, that's insulting. And I said, Creed, what's the worst thing they can tell us? And so I, I don't remember the exact numbers, but I think they were probably asking 70 or 80 on the property, and I offered around 50 and continued the rest of the day. That was how all my offers were. But all these houses were deserted and they were bank owned. And so I remember about two weeks later, I got the first phone call from Creed and he said, hey, you are not going to believe this. They took your offer. And every single property, no matter what I offered on it over the next two weeks, I got a call from him and I got it for whatever I offered, which when we think about the real estate market today, people don't even believe me when I tell the story. For sure. I mean, no matter which city you are, especially here in the Denver Metro, your escalation, what you, you know, are willing to escalate it above your actual offer you submit is those entire houses. The value of those houses, you're willing to just pay over the price that you submit, which is probably already above asking, which asking is probably 10% above any other recent comp. So it's just crazy. We were talking about that last weekend. I was like, our escalation is essentially what a house would have sold for 10 years ago. And I hate to go back and it's like, oh, wait, in 2010, because it is a different era and it's a different time. But it is one of those that it is, it's shocking <laughs> that you could have bought a house for what, what our fifty dollars to $200,000 over ask escalations are today. Only 12 years ago. Think yeah. about that. Yeah. And, and it's such a different world. I, I remember a couple of years later, I was looking at a property out there again with Creed and put my offer in and the bank countered. And I was so insulted that they countered. I didn't buy it. And, and I, I should have bought that property. They countered at 70, which the place would be worth 300 today. But I remember that distinctly, that one that I didn't buy because I was just used to getting whatever I wanted. For sure. Well, we like to try to, I mean, we can talk about those stories, you know, all day and they're fun to talk about, but that doesn't help the person today trying to buy that property at 300. So maybe share with us what your experience and what you've seen these last 12 years and how that might help someone jump in the game now, or, or how might it help them learn? So if an 08 or 09 happens or such that they're maybe prepared for that. So share some tidbits of just this last 12 years of, of your journey and how that might help someone today. So I think one, one key is to have a good team around you. I bought turnkey rentals in the Kansas city market through an introduction you made actually. Thank you. But most of my properties, Creed, the guy I mentioned was my real estate agent and I've used the same bank on every single deal, Berkeley Bank here in Denver. And, and that brings me, you know, a tidbit that I think is important. You should have a relationship with a bank. Mm -hmm. Most people, they get something under contract and then they start looking for money. Or maybe they have a pre-approval letter and they've just shopped around based on rate or, or things like that. And they don't have a relationship. I can go to, to Brandon at Berkeley Bank and say, hey, this is what I want to do. And he almost always says yes. And he might change it up a little bit. And, and usually, usually he changes it up in my favor. Hey, did you think about this, Allie? Are you worried about this? That's what banking used to be. 
it wasn't standing in line at Wells Fargo and them sending you to a personal banker because they see too much money in your checking account. It's someone that actually understands what you're trying to accomplish in your business and your goals and who wants to be a partner in that. And I'm not saying everyone should go call Brandon. I'm saying you should go find that relationship. And for most of us, I don't think that relationship is at one of the big banks that have this giant national footprint. I think it's at these these small community banks where you can walk in and someone knows who you are and actually cares. Yeah, for sure. There's stats came in, coming out this week about how Wells Fargo's overall mortgage portfolio is was down last year when most people's were up. So I think that it goes to show that the, the big banks are potentially struggling a little bit where the first banks, say the regional banks, the Berkeley banks here in Denver have just flourished these past few years because they're able to get creative and they have those relationships and that trust that some of the larger ones don't. So that's definitely something that I, I think is probably one of the wisest things someone in your position could tell someone is build that relationship before you need it. Yeah. And then like Creed, my real estate agent out in, in Idaho, he's a real estate investor. When I go look at a property with him, he wasn't trying to sell me a property. Ultimately he did that. But what he was doing was looking at it through the eyes of, of a real estate investor. And that's very different than, hey, my buddy's wife is an agent. She's going to take me out and we're going to go find a rental. Now, if your buddy's wife is an expert on investing in real estate, then she might be perfect. But if she sells five houses a year, she's probably not going to have the expertise to be able to tell you things like, and my joke with Creed He'd say, oh, this and this and this need to be done. I'd say, how much is that going to cost? He'd be, say, $1,500. I knew it was going to be exactly $3,000. I put that into my budget, and I was good to go. And I learned that from the first couple ones I did with him. And by the end, I mean, I just knew to a T what it was going to cost. And it was exactly double whatever he said. That was great. Once you understand it and know it, you put it in your spreadsheet, and you know what to do. Yeah, I like that. Now, the, the double factor that you understood that and accounted for that from the beginning, because that definitely is something I see a realtors and just anyone, I even myself, I under budget just in my head, everything. And when you really put it down to pen, pen to paper, you're like, Ooh, yeah, that's two X that. So I'm, I'm dealing with that on a five unit right now. I undershot would close next week on it. And I'm diving into the numbers a little more. And I'm like, Ooh, might've short shorted that one a little bit. So, but part of it. So you ever go back and look at your numbers later on old deals? Man, I I would absolutely I love it's the biggest kind of like spread of anything in, in, that I do in my real estate kind of investing career is how much I love something to how little I do it. By far that is data. I absolutely love data. I love seeing numbers, I see charts, but it is the least thing that I spend my time and energy on simply because I'm on to the next deal. I'm looking at the next opportunity. I'm you know, reactionary to the market, both our brokerage company, our investment company, our property management, we're just growing. So I'm just very reactionary. But man, I would love to have looked back, analyzed all of our flips, the ones that we missed out on. You talk about that one that you passed because they countered. Like I would love to have a spreadsheet of just all of those. And every year, one of my VAs is just going to Zillow or wherever and just kind of like throwing in estimated and just track that. So I have that for the next potential what if. So anyway, you can seem to see that I just kind of went on a little rambling tangent of data when you asked that because I every day I wake up and I'm like, I, I'm going to build more data. And then a deal comes up and 
squirrel chase again. Yeah. So, so when we talk about data, I've gone and looked at it and it's usually scribbling somewhere, right? I don't have like a system to really track it, but over the years I've kind of come to some numbers and, and some of these you'll find in books and some of them, maybe my numbers are a little off, but I just look at them and I always go back to the old school 1% rule, get 1% of the purchase price and rent every month. That is becoming more and more difficult unless you're willing to go put in some sweat equity to make it happen. It's just about impossible on a, on a ready-to-rent property in an area that you'd want to own it from what I've seen. But I always look at that one. I always look at my operating expenses and assume they're going to be 40 to 50% without debt service. And you know, the newer the property, the lower that might be. But we were talking about this earlier. I'm a passive investor, which there's no such thing. But the older property is typically the more expense you're going to have on it in my experience. So those numbers, if I can start with those, knowing the purchase price and what the rent is probably going to be, I can eliminate a lot of properties before I even start looking at them. Yeah, for uh, sure. That that 1% or if you're doing a, a basic GRM, if you're not quite at the point of underwriting and analyzing with a cap rate of good entry level, easy off the cusp, type of thing is a GRM, gross rent multiplier. So very similar to kind of the 1%. And that's the 100 GRM, meaning it's going to take 100 months to equal that property. So if you got $1,000 a month and you're purchasing it 100,000, that's a 1% or you look at it, the 100 GRM. And we're seeing that was stuff you could buy here in Denver and different places pretty easily. I was buying in Kansas City at a 65 was my average GRM, way even less because I was buying off market with the value add of it. But we're seeing now that 150, 175, 200 GRM. But again, it's it's just where we are in the cycle and you get the private equity money and the amount of people that have made money and done cash out refi that need to place that capital and their cost of capital is 3%. So they're okay with a four or 5% return. So, cause they're still making money on their money, otherwise that they wouldn't have. So what's your belief as a CFP and investor yourself about how to advise someone that 1% or 100 GRM isn't, isn't around anymore? That's a million dollar question. Uh, you know, a lot of my clients come to me with a deal and say, what do you think? And their idea of cash flow and mine are very different. Oftentimes I see a lot of people that are like, Oh, this is going to cash flow $200 a month. I'm going to buy it. And if I buy 10 of these, I'm going to make $2,000 a month. And then you start going into their assumptions and they're razor thin. They're not factoring in vacancies. They're not factoring in problems. They're, they're not putting in enough to to replace the things you know you're going to replace over time and as well as the things that just break and you own real estate, you know, the more properties you own, the more bills you get every month. And hopefully those bills are way less than your gross revenue. But when you have that slim margin and things start to go wrong, not a lot has to go wrong for you to be in a whole world of hurt. Now, if you have those 10 properties generating $200 a month and all of a sudden three of them are empty, got the rehab on all three of them. You've got to put another renter in all three of them. You might have eviction costs. You have all these things all at once. You might generate $20,000 in expenses in that one month. And you're making, in that example, $2,000 a month. You just wiped out the entire year's potential profit on all the properties. And it could be worse than that. We've seen 
that the one thing I say is I've never seen anything wipe out more people than real estate, and it shouldn't. <laughs> if we invest properly and don't over leverage, it should be one of the safest investments out there. But I see people get out over their skis and, and there's no recovering. Yeah. So what does someone do in this market that's maybe looking for their first property? Maybe they bought one a few years back. Now they've been able to refi cash out of that property as well as their maybe their their current home. They can do a HELOC. So do you buy? Do you wait? Do you look at different markets? I know that's, again, that's a million dollar question and it's very personal to each person maybe asking that question. But you know, for the general listener, is there any tidbits of wisdom that you could share? I think you make sure the numbers work. And one way to doing that is by cheating. You put enough down on it, at least your cash flow will work. So maybe you're not getting that 1% and forget maybe, probably you're not in this, in this current environment. But if you're 80 or 90% leveraged on the property, anything goes wrong, you're forking out money every single month to feed it. And no one wants to hear that. No one wants to hear, oh, you can't be a zero down investor. You, you need to put 30 or 40% down so that the numbers are, are a lot safer for your cash flow and for what you're doing. The other thing, and, I, and I've never done this, but I've read a lot about it and heard a lot of stories, you know, that the whole house hack thing, like buy a house where your kid's going to college and get roommates and the mortgage is paid for a few years and then maybe you sell it and exchange it into a different property after that. Maybe you buy a duplex and live in half of it. I mean, there, there's a lot of things you can do to give yourself a better shot. And I think the hardest thing about real estate is the first couple properties. Because if anything goes wrong in them, there's nothing to back you up. You know, owning one property, assuming numbers are good, can still hurt, right? It just takes one person not paying one major problem, whatever that may be. When you own 10, something's wrong in one of them, you're probably still positive cash flow wise. Yeah, for sure. Cost average, you know, and that's that's a powerful thing when you get several of them just because you can kind of rob Peter to pay Paul, but if if you only got one, you can't do that. So I think that is something to really look at making sure that first one you buy, maybe you do put that 30 or 40% down. So that way you do have that cash flow and that that what ifs covered. And then then you build it, build it from there and play the long game. So Going back, it's been in my head since you've said that, that you underwrite at that 40 to 45, 50%. I mean, I, I rarely if ever see that. I'm seeing banks underwrite stuff for investors at like 22.5%, 25%. And that that's just, that's not realistic, uh, especially to today with the inflation, the cost, roofing material cost, you have to replace a roof and it's not hail damage or insurance. It's skyrocketed. I mean, it's almost doubled, it seems like. Labor all of that's gone up. So yes, rent's also pushing up, but those material costs and labors, it's tough. So then if you're at a 70 to $150,000 house and you're two or $300 margins, it's, it definitely is a scary spot to be in. So, but it's so sexy right now, Ali, that like every, everyone wants to get in. I mean, that's, and I love it. I love the fact that real estate is such a hot topic right now. Um, but it also scares me because I, I was on that, those phones in 08 with older gentlemen crying because they were going bankrupt and losing everything because they had put it in real estate that can't go wrong. you know. So it's interesting to talk about these with someone who's on the financial planning side and the real estate side. So what'd be another, before we cut to break, what'd be your other one tidbit you'd like to share words of wisdom from that kind of combo financial planning side? So I'm going to talk about crypto for one moment. 
which is unrelated, but you struck a chord when you said that. Everyone calls me asking about Bitcoin when it's at 80,000. Nobody calls me when it's at 20,000. And with Bitcoin, I can see this because it goes up and down so hard and so fast. Real estate's much slower. And the analogy that I heard years ago in a, at a conference that has always stuck with me, that, you know, when, when you're in the market and it tanks, you can just take your lumps and find out what happened to you. But when you're in real estate, you can see the problems coming, but there's nothing you can do about it. It's like having your feet in cement and watching the bus come from three blocks away that's going to run over you. You know it's coming and there's nothing you can do if you put yourself in a bad spot. And that always struck a chord with me because it's true. By the time you see the problems, it's too late to get out, but your punishment isn't coming for another six or 12 or 18 months. And so, you know, it's, you got to be careful because most of us are using debt to manage this. And debt is the thing you should be the most scared of <laughs> in the world, in my opinion, because it can just crush you if you don't use it wisely. I get. So what would be the tip to use it wisely? I know that that's, again, open any question, but what would be your, your experience share with, with what you would tell someone? So, so one simple example. Let's say you're debating and you want to be a real estate investor and you say, should I do a 30-year or a 15-year mortgage on my personal home? Okay, a little, little outside of just the real estate side. Well, if you're going to be a real estate investor, I think you do the 30-year and maybe make the 15-year payment. So your rate might be a little bit higher, but now you've built in some, some cushion cash flow in your budget. If your real estate's not doing well, you can go to your 30-year payment and that probably frees up, depending on the size of your mortgage, 500 or or $1,000 a month that can help the real estate. So that would be an example of how do I use debt intelligently, right? So that your obligations are as low as possible, but maybe you overpay those obligations in order to make sure that, that things work. Does that make sense? 100%. I mean, we've asked that two times that came up with clients last week, which route they should go. And... Um because there is a significant difference. They see that that rate difference at 3% versus 3.5% on a 15 to a 30. I mean, sometimes it's half a full point. I mean, it can be substantial. So they're just like, man, and they run that number, but they see that that's what it's costing them per month, but then they they don't run what would cost them if they couldn't make that mortgage payment if an 08 or a COVID hit and things went the opposite direction than they, they did. That will cost you a lot more than two or three hundred dollars a month. That will cost you twenty or thirty thousand, whatever your down payment plus potentially any any delta. So, you know, I think running the what ifs for both scenarios, both what it's costing you now and the opportunity cost and the big hit if things go south. But that's a tough thing. Most people don't want to look look at the what ifs of it. That's not the fun and sexy thing of real estate. It's fun and sexy to look at the Bitcoin at eighty thousand, not at if it goes down to twenty. Yeah. And then I, you keep striking chords with me on things that sound unrelated. Having enough in savings, you can weather a lot of storms if you have six months of all your expenses and savings. I don't like to be more than six months. And I typically don't recommend that to clients because there's an opportunity cost on that money. So that next level should be something that's hopefully growing. But I think the, what was the study? The, uh, the average American can't handle a $1,200 expense unexpected expense. That's horrifying. And if you're going to be a real estate investor, which is hard, right? I'm telling you, you got to put a whole bunch of money down. And then I'm also saying you got to have a whole bunch in the bank to be safe. But if you don't do those two things, 
everything's got to go right or you're in trouble. And if you do those things, then you're grumpy, (laughs) right? The money's going out the door and you don't like it, but you're not losing a property. You're not losing your shirt. You're getting through it. And then you're rebuilding once you get through it. I like that. Lots of words of wisdom right there. So we're going to wrap up, take a quick break, and then come back with the final five. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Ecospace Real Estate. Ecospace is a Denver, Colorado-based real estate company with a national reach. They provide a unique offering called Flip Your Home, where they utilize their own internal fix and flip crews to flip their clients' homes prior to listings. Their brokerage clients gain, on average, 23000 of instant equity, which is then taken 100% tax-free. If you'd like to learn more about gaining additional tax-free equity in your home prior to listing, then please visit ecospace.com. We're back from break. Ali Barglami. Yes, Barglami. Much better. All right. <laughs> you guys are probably going to get annoyed that I've, I've tried saying his name as many times as I have. So, all right. So we're, we're going to jump into these, trying to run these a little quicker and normal because there's so much bits of wisdom on the first segment uh, that we ran over a little bit. So first question is, what's the most creative real estate deal that you've been involved in or one of your clients have done? Gosh, sorry. You got me at a loss there. Uh, I try not to be too creative. Those ones scare me. And those are the ones where you can really make a home run, right? You can add a lot of value. I've seen guys that add bedrooms and and figure out how to make a three-bedroom into a four-bedroom or add little things that make a huge difference. I do have a client that does short-term rentals and I'd call him the most creative, I guess. He goes in and just makes them beautiful, like Xboxes and pool tables and all kinds of stuff. And he finds them in areas that you can't have short-term rentals. He doesn't do short-term rentals where he's not allowed to. He finds the exception properties that are able to be short-term rental and then he makes them really nice and he's been killing it. So I'll use his example because mine was lame. No, I I think that knowing you and knowing your personality and everything and being a certified financial planner, not being creative is is a great answer. I mean, because it's a safe long-term bet of play your cards the way they're supposed to be. So um, with that 30, 40% down and accounting for 40 to 50% off X, you never can say you can't go wrong, but building the six months reserves and doing all that and playing it safe is a great strategy for the right person. Not everyone should get creative. I love house hacking. I it's built my entire real estate portfolio off of that. But it's um, you know, I was a different point in life and didn't have kids and didn't have a lot of things that others do at that time. So I could take in that risk. So I like that. The answer is going to be don't get creative, play it safe. How's that? It's a good way to make money long-term. I like it. Safe and steady. So something about a turtle and a race or hair in a race or something like that. There's some, some bit of wisdom that can be shared if I remember the analogy there. But And then the next one is, where do you kind of see the market? We used to ask, where do you see it in five years? But given how kind of unique the opportunity or the market is right now, where, where do you see it in the next year or so? We've got a convergence of things going on right now. So I, I could cheat and tell you what the Wall Street Journal said. And, you know, they're expecting modest appreciation with interest rates moving up a little bit, 
but that being tempered to some degree with inflation coming down and more inventory coming onto the market. I'm thinking about it a little longer term than that, and I think the interest rates are going to have a dampening effect on a lot of asset classes, but particularly real estate because, as you know, most of us buy our real estate based on what we qualify for or what we can afford. And if an interest rate goes from 3% on a 30-year to 5% on a 30-year, that doesn't sound like a huge move. That's a 40% higher payment. For every 100000 you borrow, instead of $3,000 a year, it's costing you $5,000 a year. And that will, I think, cool down real estate to some degree. I don't think it's going to crash it by any stretch of the imagination because we don't have enough inventory for everyone. So I'm hedging my bet on my answer. Hey, that's, I mean, 40%, if that does happen, that will have an effect if your margins are two or $300 a month of cash flow. So everything else being the same, that offsets at two or 300. So that property no longer makes sense. And if you're in fixed rates on it, you're fine unless you need to sell it. Because now the buyer may not be willing to pay what you paid for it because the cash flow is not there. Yep. Yeah. I'll be interesting to see. I'd like to actually do a a full episode on the history of what they, they term rate lock that just people don't sell a property or they don't move simply because historically when interest rates go up, they don't want to lose that, that rate. You know, Historically, people moved, sold their home and didn't keep it as a rental. Now you're seeing a lot of people. That's why one of the lack of inventory is so many people want to be an investor and they keep their first house, that first house hack or that starter home when they buy their move up. So, you know, they're already keeping those, but the few that might sell might not because of that rate lock. So definitely think that will have an effect positively and negatively on the market, TBD. It's such a unique market that we're in. So another question we like to ask is, you know, what's a way that you like to give back to the real estate market and your clients and such that have treated you so well over the years and your success? So right now I'm, I'm serving as the treasurer on the Home Builders Foundation board here in Denver. And um, for those who don't know, Home Builders Foundation goes in and they help make a house accessible for someone who, whether they have a disability or maybe they're aging in place and, and need a ramp or a bathroom remodel to be able to get in and out of the shower, things like that. So I've been doing, done some work with them for years, but they asked me to be the treasurer and so I'm doing that. You're the money man. So you're a good fit for that. So appreciate you doing that and being involved in, in, uh, in that organization. So the other is, is we just like to put in here, what's the best way for people to contact you? So if they want to reach out and learn a little bit more about your financial planning, or you're just investing in the Kansas City or, or Boise, Denver market, what's the best way for them to reach out? They can either call me or email me. My email is Allie, A-L-I, at B-W-A, that's Bravo Whiskey Alpha, dot financial. Or they can call me. My cell is 303-875-2159. Excellent. We'll throw that in show notes. And, and one, actually, the question I did skip over on accident here was what's one piece of content, article, anything out there that you think is really great for someone to dive into today to help them in the real estate journey, wherever that might be? Is that a certain podcast or a book or such out there? Uh, I really like Brandon Turner's books. 
He's wrote a book. I think it's the book on rental property investing. And him and his wife wrote another one on managing rental properties. They're on Audible. I recommend them to clients who are interested in, in doing this all the time. I think he does a really nice job of explaining the pros and the cons of real estate. Not you're going to get rich overnight, but instead a lot of the things, the principles that we talked about today, I would attribute to reading his books and kind of applying a lot of what he recommends. Excellent. Well, we got your information in the show notes for people to reach out to you. So it's been absolute pleasure diving in and we'll have you on here in the future and, and see if those expectations you've, you've set for yourself in the market uh, come true. And we'll see where, where the journey takes us. Thanks, my friend. Great seeing you. All right. Well, as always, my friends, my listeners, until next time, think outside the box. Thank you so much for listening to the Creative Real Estate Podcast. And if you got value from this episode of the podcast, please take the time to leave us a rating and review on iTunes. Give us a written rating and a review. We'd really, really appreciate it. I'm going to let you go. But until next time, think outside the box. Think outside the box.